Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of the third chapter of John. Let's open today's message by reading John chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. If I have told you of earthly things, and ye believe not, how shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Nicodemus revealed ignorance, even in the elementary things that he should have known as the teacher of Israel. Therefore Jesus answers, Art thou the master of Israel, and knowest not these things? Nicodemus, you should have known about the new birth. As the master teacher of Israel, he should have known through the study of the scriptures, at least in a general way, that Israel, before entering and possessing the kingdom promised to them, must be an Israel not only circumcised in the flesh, but in the heart as well. Nicodemus had the Old Testament canon, and he professed to be a master teacher from that canon. The Jewish scriptures are filled with teachings that relate to the necessity of the new birth. The Old Testament prophets make it very plain that only the born-again remnant of Israel will enter the land and enjoy the millennial glories. In Isaiah chapter 44 and verse 3 we read, For I will pour water on him that is thirsty, and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed, and my blessing upon thine offspring. What do we have in this passage? God is saying, by the water of my word, and by the power of my spirit, I am going to work the miracle of the new birth. One of the clearest teachings of the new birth and its necessity for a remnant of Israel to enter the millennial kingdom is found in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 23 through 28. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments, and do them. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. There we have it again, born of water and of the Spirit. Nicodemus, as the teacher of Israel, you should have known this. In verse 11, the Lord Jesus continues to speak, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, We speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye receive not our witness. 
the Lord answers the we know of Nicodemus in verse 2 by his we know of verse 11. When Nicodemus used that expression, he was speaking for a certain class of individuals, namely the Sanhedrin. When Jesus used the expression, he was also speaking for a certain class of people, namely those who had experienced the new birth, the apostles and the disciples with him, thus identifying himself with the recipients of his grace. Nicodemus said, We, myself and the Sanhedrin, know that thou art a teacher come from God. The Lord said, We, myself and the apostles, speak that we do know, and testify that we have seen, and ye, yourself and the Sanhedrin, receive not our witness. The Lord Jesus Christ was saying, It is my mission in the earth, and also the mission of those who follow me, to testify of the things of which we have experimental knowledge through having seen them through our eyes. The problem is that you who are of the religious leaders in Israel are not receiving our witness. I have told you of the necessity of the new birth, which you should have already known, and yet you remain confused. Then Jesus follows this with the statement of verse 12. If I have told you of earthly things, and you believe not, how shall you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Of these earthly things, the earthly kingdom, and the conditions to enter therein, the Lord had spoken, and Nicodemus did not know those simple things revealed in the Hebrew Scriptures. Of the heavenly things, the Lord did not speak to Nicodemus, and these heavenly things concern the fullness of redemption, the believer's identification with himself, the gift of the Spirit, and the church as the body and fullness of Christ. From the Lord's words, we learn conclusively two important facts. First, the kingdom of God has both an earthly and a heavenly side. The earthly side is the kingdom promised to Israel. The heavenly side is the church with her heavenly calling and destiny. The second fact is that the Lord here speaks only of the earthly things of the kingdom. The heavenly things were made known after the Holy Spirit came to earth. The earthly kingdom was spoken of many times in the Old Testament. The Hebrew scriptures plainly revealed the fact that it was always necessary to be born again in order to come into the God's kingdom. This earthly kingdom was heaven's rule on earth. It was the righteous kingdom of the Old Testament. But the Lord Jesus knew that the earthly kingdom was, for the time being, to be postponed. In effect, his words to Nicodemus were, I have other secrets, but you will not understand them. You do not even understand earthly things taught in the scriptures that you profess to know. Nicodemus was not ready for a revelation of the heavenly aspect of the kingdom that we enjoy in this age of grace. He had not yet apprehended the truths of the earthly kingdom as clearly taught in the law and the prophets. In the next verse, the one who spoke thus to Nicodemus reveals himself in his full deity. He is not a teacher come from God, but rather one who came down from heaven, and though in the form of a man on earth, in his divine omnipresence, is still in heaven. The words he spoke to Nicodemus demand our careful attention. No man hath ascended up to heaven. Some have looked upon this statement as a contradiction and point to Enoch and Elijah who were caught up out of the earth without dying. However, Scripture never says that these two went into the third heaven, the place of the immediate presence of God. They could not have gone there because they were still in mortal flesh as they were caught up. The first resurrection 
immortal body was possessed by Jesus Christ many centuries later. Had Enoch and Elijah received immortal bodies prior to the Lord Jesus Christ, then he would not have been the first fruits of them that slept, as is said that he was in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. The heaven of which our Lord speaks is the third heaven, where the dwelling place of God is. Into this heaven no man has ever ascended, and Acts chapter 2 and verse 34 assures us of this. Prior to the cross, no mere man, body, soul, or spirit, had ever ascended to that heaven. The Lord speaks of himself. He that descended is the same also who ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. That's according to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 10. We can associate this statement of our Lord with Proverbs chapter 30 and verse 4. Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is his son's name, if thou canst tell? But why does our Lord speak here first of ascending into heaven, and afterward mention his descent? As he speaks to Nicodemus, he is speaking prophetically, that is, in anticipation of that which is to happen. He did this several times in John's Gospel. In his great high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, he said, I am no longer in the world, yet he was still in the world. So here he anticipates his ascension. He descended, he came down from heaven first. This is irrefutable evidence of his pre-existence and his deity. Equally so are the words, the Son of Man who is in heaven. The Son of Man who is in heaven reveals the omnipresence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was still the omnipresent God even when he took on the flesh of man. While living on earth as man, he had local presence here. However, he was at the same time in heaven. As God, he dwelt in heaven. As man, he dwelt on earth. Every moment between his coming down from heaven and his going back, this statement was true of himself. It proves to us that he did not relinquish his deity when he appeared in the form of a servant. This gospel shows us his three great attributes of deity, omnipotence, omniscience, and here, omnipresence. As God, he was in heaven while he spoke with Nicodemus. If Christ were only a teacher come from God and nothing more, he could not have used these words. His full deity is declared, as it is written, not only that Christ came down from heaven, but that he is in heaven. The great marvel of this verse is this. He who came down from heaven and had the power to ascend into heaven was at all times the Son of God in heaven, for he was and is omnipresent. My time is gone. We'll continue with our study of this third chapter of John on the next broadcast, exactly where we leave off today. Thank you, and welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad you've joined us by radio as we bring you another study from God's Word. We're engaged in a study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. We're considering the Lord's interview with Nicodemus, and from it, the true meaning of the term born again. Let's open today's message by reading John chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. It's in verses 14 and 15 that the Lord gave final answers to Nicodemus' questions. He refers him to an incident that occurred long years before while the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In the previous verse, the Lord had spoken of himself as the Son of Man who is in heaven, and now he speaks of himself as the Son of Man to be lifted up. Nicodemus must have remembered as the teacher in Israel that the prophet Daniel spoke of the Messiah as the Son of Man. He saw him in the night vision coming in the clouds of heaven to receive the kingdom, according to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 14. Nicodemus, in common with the nation, expected the coming of the Messiah to set up his kingdom and overlooked the fact that the same prophet who beheld him coming to receive the kingdom also records the rejection of the Messiah. Messiah shall be cut off and have nothing, according to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Our Lord therefore points out to him that before the glory can come, there must be the suffering first. The Son of Man, who will receive the throne of his father David and the promised kingdom, must first be lifted up. This is the second must in the third chapter of this gospel. If man must be born again in order to see and enter the kingdom of God, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that man, dead in his trespasses and sin, destitute of eternal life, may receive such life and not perish. The words of our Lord give the answer to the question Nicodemus has asked. How can these things be? The Son of Man must be lifted up. What our Lord means by the sentence, the Son of Man must be lifted up, is his death by crucifixion. John chapter 12, verses 32 and 33 makes this plain. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me, this he said, signifying what death he should die. The Lord Jesus then reminds Nicodemus of the wilderness experience of the Jews who were on their way to the promised land. They had murmured against God, being dissatisfied with the manna which came from heaven. The incident is recorded in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 9. God had sent fiery serpents among them as a judgment. They bit the people, and as a result, many died. The people acknowledged their sin and asked the Lord to take away the serpents. Instead of doing that, God had Moses place a serpent of brass on a pole. And when a person was bitten, all he had to do to be cured of the snake bite was to look at the serpent of brass. Our Lord uses that incident as an illustration which would give the gospel to Nicodemus. He said, in effect, Nicodemus, you've been bitten by the snake bite of sin. Just as that brass serpent was elevated upon a pole, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever puts his trust in him might be having eternal life. The use of this incident to illustrate the wonderful truth of redemption manifests the heavenly wisdom of our Lord. It also confirms the typical teaching 
of Old Testament events that all these things happened unto them for types, and they are written for our admonition, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11. The Lord's words to Nicodemus were just as though he had said, I'm going to the cross, and there on that cross I will become the antitype of that brass serpent. There I will be made sin in order that sinners may become the righteousness of God through faith in me. In the wilderness, it was the serpents that afflicted the people. The poison of those frightful creatures was in the blood of the dying Israelites. The remedy was a serpent of brass. Brass is a symbol of judgment, uplifted, and all who looked to it were healed. The condition in the camp of Israel is a picture of the ravages of sin and the wages of sin, which is death. The fatal poison of sin working in the race, and man is spiritually dead. The brazen serpent lifted up on a pole is the type of Christ in his sacrificial work of the cross. That serpent was the very image of what was destroying the Israelites. However, the brazen serpent had no poisonous fangs. There was no poison in it. Though it bore the likeness of the serpent, the emblem of sin, it was harmless. Thus the Son of God appeared in the form of man, in the likeness of sinful flesh, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. But he was without sin. He knew no sin. When he was lifted up on the cross, on that cross, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. By the offering of himself for sin, he put away sin. Hanging on that cross, he bore the curse and redeemed those who believe on him from the curse, being made a curse for us. For it's written, Cursed is every one that hangeth on a tree. Looking up to the brazen serpent, the Israelites saw the very thing which had put death and ruin upon them triumphed over, completely conquered. And so as we look to Christ crucified, made a curse, bearing sin, we see sin judged, condemned, triumphed over, robbed of its power, and stripped of its strength. As the Israelites looked to the lifted up brazen serpent and beheld there a representation of God's power over that which wrought death, and beheld thus God's ability to save, to end death, and to give life, the power of God was blessedly manifested in their salvation. Whosoever beheld the serpent of brass lived. Even so, when we turn our eyes to the cross of Calvary, we behold the power of God in salvation. The old man has been crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be annulled, that henceforth we may not serve sin. We see ourselves redeemed from the guilt and power of sin. Death is ended, and life is given, even eternal life. We should note that the death-stricken Israelite was not saved by a natural process of improvement, by a gradual restoration, but by a sudden supernatural manifestation of divine power. That life by which they lived was miraculous in its character. How blessedly and fully all this foreshadows and illustrates the gospel of our salvation. The question Nicodemus asked as to the how of the new birth is wonderfully answered. Christ died for the ungodly, and believing on him means salvation from eternal perdition and the gift of eternal life. What is it to believe? It's the same thing that the Israelites did when in simple faith they accepted God's word, believed its truth, and then looked to the brazen serpent on the pole. 
This is the way to salvation as announced long before our Lord spoke these words of life to the teacher in Israel. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. According to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 22. Again, what are the symbols that we have in the incident of the brass serpent? It was sin that caused the trouble for humanity. The serpent was a type of Satan, and that type dates back to the Garden of Eden. The poison in that serpent was sin. But what took place on the cross? The sinless one was made sin for us. He is the antitype of the brazen serpent. That serpent, lifted up on the pole, had no poison in it. It had never done anybody any harm. It was a picture of the great sin offering. When the Israelites looked to it, they were healed. The Lord Jesus Christ had no sin in him, but in grace he took the sinner's place. And when people look up to him in faith, they're born again. They have eternal life. Verse 15 says, That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. The conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, so far as the record of John is concerned, closes with verse 15. Verses 16 through 21 constitute John's elaboration upon and explanation of the conversation. This appears clear from the following considerations. First, the words of the Lord Jesus, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speak of his looking into the future to a sacrifice which was not at the time of the conversation uh, that was taking place was consummated. However, the words, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, look back to a past act in which God gave his son. Our Lord would not have changed tenses that way in the midst of a conversation. It's the Lord Jesus looking forward to the cross and then John looking back to it. It appears that after John recorded this conversation, Remembering that the gospel was given in Jewish terminology and that he was writing for the Gentile world, he saw the need of some explanatory material that would give the gospel to the Gentiles in terms which they could more easily understand. The divine source and inspiration of these words is the Holy Spirit of God. It makes no difference whether the Lord Jesus Christ spoke them on earth or whether through the Spirit he spoke them from heaven through John. Once again, my time is almost gone. We'll continue our study of John chapter 3 on the next broadcast, exactly where we leave off today. Greetings in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. We're continuing our study of John chapter 3. Today we'll look at what's been called the gospel in a nutshell, John 3.16. Let's open this message by reading John chapter 3, verses 14 through 18. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
John 3.16 is often called the gospel in miniature. There's a sense in which the entire story of the Bible is told in this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This verse opens with the little word, for. This word connects a statement of Jesus in verse 14 with a statement of John in verse 16. The Lord said, Even so, it is necessary in the nature of the case for the Son of Man to be lifted up. Here we have, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. The connection is as follows. The question might come, what was there in the nature of the case that made the crucifixion a necessity? It was not the justice of God which required the Son to pay the penalty for sin. God, in perfect righteousness, could have required sinful man to pay his own penalty for his wrongdoing. The broken law would have been satisfied, for the wages of sin is death. It was the love of God for a race of lost sinners that was the necessity in the nature of the case which required that a substitute be found to pay for man's sin. That substitute is the Lord Jesus. John chapter 3 and verse 16 completely contradicts the idea that a great many persons seem to have about God. Many believe that God is represented in Scripture as a stern, angry judge who's awaiting to destroy men because of their sins. These same people believe that Jesus Christ, in some way or another, has made it possible for God to come out in love toward sinners. In other words, they believe that Christ loved us enough to die for us, and, having washed away our sins, God can now love us and be merciful to us. This is a total perversion of the gospel. Jesus Christ did not die to enable God to love sinners. Rather, we're told, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. It was because of God's love that Jesus Christ came into the world to die. This same precious truth is set forth in similar words in 1 John chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, the doing away for our sins. The coming to this world of our Lord Jesus Christ and his going to the cross, there to settle the sin question and thus meet every claim of divine righteousness against the sinner, is the proof of the infinite love of God toward a world of guilty men. Thankful we should be for this limitless love extended to us, a world of guilty sinners. We worship the one that demonstrated his infinite love by giving his Son for our redemption. God commendeth his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When you really stop to think about it, it could not be otherwise, because he is love. We're taught in both 1 John chapter 4 and verse 8 and 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16 that God is love. That is his very nature. We can say that God is gracious, but we cannot say that God is grace. We can say that God is compassionate, but we cannot say that God is compassion. God is kind, but God is not kindness. But we can say God is love. That is his nature, and love had to manifest itself. 
although men had forfeited every claim that they might have upon God. Still he loved us and sent his only son to become the propitiation for our sins. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever believeth, what is it to believe? It's to trust in him, to confide in him, to commit yourself and your affairs to him. This verse says to all those who will listen, you cannot save yourself. All your efforts to redeem yourself can only end in failure. But I have given my son to die for you. Trust in him. Confide in him. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Have. That suggests the present possessive. He does not say, hope to have everlasting life. We are having everlasting life right here and now when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and when we put our entire trust in him. Life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. In the words, should not perish, but have everlasting life, there's a radical change in tenses, from the aorist, which speaks of a once-for-all act, to the present subjunctive, which speaks of a continuous state. The contrast is one between the final utter ruin and lost estate of the unbeliever and the possession of eternal life as an enduring experience on the part of the believer. The entire verse, taken straight from the Greek text, is as follows. For in this manner God loved the world, so that his Son, the only begotten one, he gave, in order that everyone who places his trust in him might not perish, but might be constantly having life eternal. Furthermore, we're told in verse 18 that God did not send Jesus Christ into the world that the world should be judged, the meaning of the word condemned, by him, but that the world through him might be saved. Later, our Lord spoke words to the same effect. I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. The Old Testament prophetic word shows Messiah as the judge of the nations and of the ungodly, both among Israel and the Gentiles. His coming means judgment, and for the earth the rule of righteousness, when righteousness will reign through him as king of kings. Nicodemus and Jews who awaited the promised Messiah and his kingdom therefore expected him to come as judge. They overlooked the fact that his second coming will bring both the judgments announced by the prophets and the establishment of the throne of righteousness. His first coming was not for the fulfillment of the promises to establish his kingdom. While the Jews were blind as to the purpose of his first coming, the professing church of today is even more blind as to his second coming. The purpose of his first coming was that all the world might have a door of salvation open through himself, that salvation might be provided for all the world, and that those who believe on him might be saved. But it does not mean that all the world will be saved in this age. When those who believe are gathered out, when the church, the body of Christ, is complete, his second coming will take place, and then he will judge the world in righteousness. As though to encourage the guiltiest sinner to come to him, in verse 17 the Spirit says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. 
It's hard to believe in the light of the clear teaching of this scripture, but there are those within the sphere of professing Christendom that teach that the Lord Jesus is so great and mighty and holy that it is not fitting that a poor sinner should go directly to him. Rather, such teach that he should be approached through his mother, because there's none other that has such great influence on him. How could anyone believe that Jesus is unapproachable? How could anyone believe that Jesus is hard to be contacted? Even when he walked the earth, it was said of him, This man receiveth sinners. And now, though high in heavenly glory, he still says to sinners, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We can all go directly to him, and when we trust him, he gives us eternal life. He did not come to condemn, judge the world. He came with a heart of love to win poor sinners to himself. In verse 18, John elaborates on his previous words. He informs his reader that God did not send his son to judge but to save, and that whoever accepts his son as Savior is not judged. Then he takes up the case of the unbeliever and says that such a person stands judged already. He uses the perfect tense which speaks of a past complete action having present results. The unbeliever does not wait until a future trial to see whether he's to be judged guilty or not guilty, for John declares that he's already been judged with the present result that he's looked upon by God as under his judgment. That is, he stands convicted of his sin of unbelief. The sin of which he is guilty, John says, is that he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, with the present result that he is in a permanent attitude of unbelief. John again uses the perfect tense here. This is no snap judgment on the part of the unbeliever, John says, but a deliberate and confirmed attitude toward God's Son. This, John says, does not merely disclose human infirmity and passion, but shows a wickedness of man which he chooses and prefers in the presence of the goodness of God which has been revealed in the cross. My time is about gone for today. We'll continue our study of the third chapter of John on the next broadcast. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. I'm glad that you've joined us by radio for another message from God's Word. We're continuing our study of the third chapter of the Gospel of John. Let me open today's message by reading John chapter 3, verses 18 through 21. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Notice just how plain and simple verse 18 is. Anyone who's dissatisfied with their natural state and seeking light should remember that these are the very words of the living God. He that believeth on him is not condemned, judged. But he that believeth not is condemned, judged, already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Do you see what we're told here? There are just two classes of people in that verse. 
All men in the world who have ever heard the message are divided into these two classes. What are the two classes? First, he that believeth. They are those who believe in Jesus. They stand by themselves. Now the second class, he that believeth not. Every person who has ever heard of Jesus Christ is in one of those two classes. Everyone who's heard of the Lord Jesus is either among those who believe in Jesus or among those who do not believe. It's not a question of believing about him. It's a question of believing in him. It's not holding mental conceptions about him, mere facts of history, but it's trusting him, committing yourself to him. Those who trust him and those who do not trust him. We each have to ask ourselves into which of these two groups are we to be found. He that believeth in him, am I there? He that believeth not, am I there? If anyone finds himself in the latter group, he should make haste to move out of there into the first group. You pass out of the one and into the other by trusting in Jesus. Simply pray the sinner's prayer in sincerity. Does someone sincerely not know whether he's in the first group or not? The verse says, He that believeth in him is not condemned. The question is, does one believe in him? If so, the promise is there. He that believeth in him is not condemned. There's no further room for doubt. But suppose one finds himself in the latter group. Listen to what it says. He that believeth not is condemned already. One does not need to wait until the day of judgment to find that out. Condemned? Why? Because such a person has been dishonest? No. Because such a one has lied? No. Because such a one has been unclean and unholy? No. Is it any of those things? Not at all. What does the verse say? He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the condemnation. All those sins one has been guilty of, Christ took into account when he died. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. So if one is condemned, it is not simply because of the many sins that one has committed to his lifetime. It's because of spurning the revelation of the Savior that God has provided. If that one turns away from God and continues rejecting the Lord Jesus, he is committing the worst sin there is. He came a light into the world to lighten the darkness. If one turns away from him, he himself is responsible for the darkness in which he will live and die. The sinner who believes on the Son of God is no longer under that condemnation. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That's found in John chapter 5 and verse 24. But what a solemn truth it is that he that believeth not is condemned already. He remains in his guilty condition before God with wrath abiding upon him, according to verse 36. He's judged because he does not believe in the Son of God. Unbelief, then, is the sin which damns. Well has it been said, Nothing is so provoking and offensive to God as to refuse the glorious salvation he has provided at so mighty a cost by the death of his only begotten Son. Nothing is so suicidal on the part of men as to turn away from the only remedy which can heal his soul. 
Other sins may be scarlet, filthy, abominable, but not to believe on Christ is to bar the door in our own way and to cut off ourselves from heaven. John chapter 3 and verse 18 may well be the most powerful verse in the Bible. It's deadly to avoid the plain truth of which it speaks. The truth of verse 18 is further explained by John in the words, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world with the present result that it is here, and men love rather the darkness than the light. The light here is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's coming into the world refers to the incarnation. The words is come are a good translation of the Greek perfect tense, which speaks of a past complete act having present results. It is not as if the Lord Jesus had flashed across the vision of sinful humanity like a meteor through the sky and then was gone. Rather, he came and lived here for 33 years in full view of mankind. And since his ascension, he lives in the hearts and lives of believers. The human race, therefore, cannot plead an unfair opportunity to see the light. It stands judged because it rejects the light which it has before itself constantly. The rejection of God's Son, therefore, is not the result of ignorance, but of deliberate choice and preference. But John hastens to inform his reader that this rejection of the Savior is not fundamentally an intellectual thing, but has its roots in a totally depraved nature. He says that this preference of darkness to light is found in the fact that men's works were constantly evil. The word evil is the Greek porneros, which means evil in active opposition to the good. To paraphrase John's words, we can say, And this, the condemnation, that he, the light, came into the world, and through his coming it has been manifested what the heart of man is. Because man has an evil heart, and does evil deeds, he loves darkness rather than light. It was so with the Jews, and it still is so. The light of the gospel is here. It has been shining for more than 1,900 years, yet man continues to love darkness and refuses the light. The rejection of the gospel light has never been greater than it is at the present. Rejecting the light, the gospel of the cross, is the greatest tragedy of human existence, for it seals an eternal doom. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Isn't it strange that men would rather continue in darkness than to turn to him who is the light of life and find deliverance? John continues this thought in the words, For every one who habitually practices evil is hating the light and does not come to the light in order that his works might not be convicted. The distinctive word for evil here is phallos, which means that which is paltry, ugly, poor. It refers to a dull, senseless viciousness. Thus John states that the basis of all rejection of Christ is a totally depraved nature, a love of sin, and a hatred of the good. Again, to paraphrase, He that doeth truth, who in sincerity believes, cometh to the light, and walks in the light, and thus it will be manifested that his deeds are wrought in God, the fruits of the new nature he received in believing on the Son of God. On the other hand, John says, the person who practices the truth comes to the light in order that the character of his works might be openly shown. This he does because he realizes that his deeds have been wrought in God in the sense that God the Holy Spirit dwelling in him produces the works. 
Let's repeat John's words. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. These words may be heard by someone who has never made the decision to trust Christ and to receive him into their heart. Let this question be addressed to that one. Are you going to turn away from the light today, or are you coming into the light? Will you trust the blessed one who is the light of the world and thus receive the salvation that he so freely offers you? The interview with Nicodemus, along with John's inspired commentary on it, ended with verse 21. That which follows brings up another incident in the historical record of our Lord's earthly ministry. It might seem that these two events are unrelated, and some might wonder why John chose to relate this incident in the ministry of John the Baptist immediately after his record of the Nicodemus interview. However, there is divine purpose in the choice of this sequence. The Holy Spirit of God is presenting witness to testify of the person or work of the Son of God. The record given provides opportunity for John the Baptist to present his testimony in the form of an elaboration of the Lord's words to Nicodemus. My time is gone for today. We'll consider the testimony of John the Baptist as we conclude this study of the third chapter of John on the next broadcast. Greetings in the highest name under heaven, the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. Welcome to another broadcast of The Bible Stands. For the past two weeks, we've been involved in a study of the third chapter of John's Gospel. Today, we'll conclude this series of messages by considering the testimony of John the Baptist. Let me read John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized. And John also was baptizing in Anon near to Salem, because there was much water there. And they came and were baptized, for John was not yet cast into prison. Then there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying. And they came unto John and said unto him, Rabbi, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, Behold, the same baptizeth, and all men come to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing, except it be given him from heaven. Ye yourselves bear me witness, that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom, which standeth and heareth him, rejoiceth greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his te testimony hath set to his seal that God is true. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. John the Baptist rested in the will of God, perfectly content and assured that all was well. 
What did it matter if more men came to the one of whom he had borne witness than to himself? John was fulfilling his mission as the herald of the king. He fully understood that he was the one of whom Isaiah had prophesied in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John assured his questioners that no one could have a successful ministry except God be behind it. A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. He reminds these jealous men that he had told them from the beginning that he was not Messiah. He was only his forerunner, his herald. Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Messiah, but that I am sent before him. John then speaks of Christ as the bridegroom. He that hath the bride is the bridegroom. But who's the bride? Not Israel, who nationally held the position of the married wife symbolically. Being unfaithful, she was divorced, which is her present condition. A day is coming when Israel will be reinstituted and become once more married unto the Lord in earthly glory. Speaking to Israel as the cast-off wife, Jehovah said, Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken, neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate, but thou shalt be called Hesabah, and thy land Beulah. For the Lord delighteth in thee, and thy land shall be married. Also, and it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, husband, and shalt call me no more Baali, my Lord. A divorced wife, taken back into favor, can hardly be called a bride. The bride of which John the Baptist speaks is the church, gathered now to the heavenly bridegroom, destined to be the Lamb's wife, and to share with him all his heavenly glory. John calls himself only the bridegroom's friend. Notice he does not claim to himself to be the bride. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was never a part of the church, and he founded no church denomination. He is only a friend of the bridegroom, and as such, he greatly rejoiced to hear the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, Christ was all his joy. To exalt him was the total business of his ministry. He was content to decrease and see Christ increase. He must increase, but I must decrease. This is the third must in this chapter. As John stated it, even so, it should be in the individual experience of every believer. Christ must increase, and we decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. The Spirit-filled John exalts the Lord Jesus and bears witness to his deity. He is from above. Unlike all other men who have come into existence only at the time of their conception, he was pre-existent even before the world was. When his flesh was conceived within the body of the Virgin Mary, his spirit came down from heaven from whence his goings forth, ministries, had been from of old, from everlasting. Since he is from above, therefore he is above all. Having come from above, he speaks of the heavenly things he has seen and of which he knows. The words of Christ, therefore, are the unchangeable, the unchanging, the ever-abiding words of heavenly truth. He is the truth, and his word is truth. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. He that hath received his testimony hath set to his seal that God is truth. With him whom he thus exalts, John compares his own inferior ministry. He is of the earth and his conception is earthly. It's weak and imperfect. 
as are all earthly things. The statement, no man receiveth his testimony, anticipates the Lord's rejection. However, if anyone believes the testimony of him who is above and who has made known heavenly things, he has set to it his seal that God is true. The seal was attached to a document to confirm and to attest to it. In like manner, he who receives the testimony of Christ, believes on him, trusts in him, declares thus his belief that God is true to his word and has kept his promises as to Christ and salvation. On the other hand, he that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. The Son of God sent by God, one with God, speaks the words of God. How could it be otherwise? This is followed by another great statement. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. In him the fullness of the Godhead was pleased to dwell. Prophets in the Old Testament received the Holy Spirit by measure, that is, in limited measure. This was not so concerning the one who is very God. He in whom the Father dwelt was also the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. In our age, those who are in Christ receive the Holy Spirit, not by measure, but rather he himself comes as the abiding guest. Believers are then the temples of the Holy Spirit. Verse 35 says, The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hands. This means that the Father, in anticipation of the redemptive work of his Son, has given him the preeminence in all things. As he has said in the second Psalm, I will declare the decree the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. All things belong to the Son in his essential deity, but as the incarnate Son of God, he finished the work that he alone could finish, the work of the cross. Therefore he has been made the heir of all things. The final testimony of John is a very solemn utterance. It's the reason that the Holy Spirit followed the Lord's interview with Nicodemus with this incident in the ministry of John the Baptist. This great truth is a fit termination of this most significant chapter. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Here John the Baptist states the way to life. To receive eternal life as a present possession, hath means is having. One must exercise faith in the Son of God. This is the only requirement. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a gift of God given to those who believe on the Son. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. What an important statement this is. This is a reaffirmation of the fact that there are only two classes of people in the world, just as was presented in John chapter 3 and verse 18. John the Baptist adds his testimony to that of the Lord and to that of John the Apostle, the inspired author of this gospel. Many are today disbelieving the revelation of God's word concerning the wrath of God and the eternal punishment of all those who do not accept the Lord Jesus Christ and who do not believe on him. Some deny altogether that the sinner is by nature a child of wrath. Others say that the wicked man dies like the beast. They persuade themselves that somehow, in some way, the wicked are annihilated and have no immortality. They say only those who believe on Christ possess immortality. 
Others have invented a second chance theory. Others believe, or say they believe, in universal salvation, while others call it restitution or restoration. All these theorists deny that there is such a thing as the eternal, never-ending wrath of God. All of them juggle with the Hebrew and Greek words translated forever and everlasting as if these are terms of limitation. However, the one sentence, the final testimony of this spirit-filled man of God, answers all their delusions and hallucinations. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. Life is not defined as eternal existence, but rather as eternal existence in the presence of God. To not see life does not mean that one will cease to exist. It means that he will never exist in the presence of the holy God. However, the wrath of God abideth, resides forever on him. Such wrath could not abide forever on one who is annihilated at physical death. That one who believeth not on the Son of God will exist forever, and that forever will be filled with God's abiding punishment. May we all realize as never before what an awful thing it is to reject the Son of God and to neglect so great a salvation. Knowing this great truth, may we go forth and give a dying world the gospel of his grace as it was presented to Nicodemus during that historic interview by night. My time is gone. Friend.